Amen. Well, I have a confession to start. Before you start preaching, that's where you get everything out. So my confession today is um, there's a couple things that I do bad. Um, I struggle with rushing the process, and I struggle with getting in front of God. All right? I, I know it's just me. Um, I like to get out in front of things. I like to plan. I like to have a strategy. The problem is, <laughs> the problem is when I get out in front of God and I realize that I didn't go in the right direction. I get out and I take a leap and I realize this wasn't where I was supposed to be. I even like to do this with my kids sometimes. You ever been trying to get ready? I only have, we only have two kids. Did you know how hard it is to get two kids, two girls, amen, in the car on time to go somewhere? So what I do is I used to have the habit of telling them, come on, let's go, faster, faster. You need to get ready. It's time to go. It's time to go. Now I just say, you know what? I'm going to go wait in the car. I'm going to get out in front of this as if that's going to make them go any faster. <laughs> the Lord. That doesn't work. I like to get out in front of things, but it does not work for me. I get out in front because I think I've got a plan and a strategy, and I find myself out on an island. And sometimes we like to get out in front of things. You know what? Um, and what happens when we get out in front of things is really what we're saying is, I want my agenda to be in front of everyone else's agenda. And don't you know sometimes agendas collide in our lives? If you have kids, you know about agendas colliding. I want to tell you about two weeks ago, agendas collided at our house. Um, our teenage daughter, um, if you have teenagers, she came into the room to talk to my wife. Praise the Lord, she wasn't talking to me. And um, she began to unveil the plan that she had for her day to my wife. We want to go to the mall. I've talked to my friends. We want to go out to eat. We want to go over to one of their friends' house, go to the park and hang out. Then on the way home, want to go to Andy's frozen custard. She had a whole day planned out. This whole scheme was hatched up. Not only did she have it all planned out, she had talked to all her friends already and told them this was the plan. To make it even better, all the friends had talked to their parents and thought this was a plan that we were presenting to all of them. This plan had got so far hatched, and we didn't even know about the plan. Here's the thing. She don't got no car. Number one, she, has no, she don't have that much money, and she has no authority in our household to make plans like this. You ever been in a situation like that? So then agendas collide because she can't make that plan for our household. There's a bigger agenda called mommy and daddy have other things we're doing today besides Ubering you around all day long. That's what happens when agendas collide, and we all have agendas in our lives that collide. You and I have an agenda. You had an agenda of where you wanted to go to school. You had an agenda of the kind of job that you wanted in your life. You know what? You had an agenda. You have an agenda for the kind of spouse you want. You have an agenda of how you want your kid, you want your kids to grow up and the values you want your kids to have. You, you have an agenda of what you want your vacations to look like. Praise God. You have an agenda of what you want retirement to look like. You have an agenda of what you want your bank account to look like. Anybody got an agenda out there? The problem is when our agenda doesn't line up with God's agenda. And what happens is we get out in front of God and we let our agendas get in the way of things. Now, especially, this is really infectious amongst those of us who are planners in here. We have some planners in here and then we have some spontaneous people who just don't care. Uh, if you're a planner, by planner, what I really mean is you're a control freak, okay? Any planners in the house, raise your hand if you're the planners. Yes, you like to be in control. Spontaneous people, give me a clap. Yeah, see, you don't care. You'll, do, you'll clap, you're spontaneous. You'll get up, you'll dance, you'll clap. Spontaneous people don't care. Planners, what we like to do is we like to get out in front of things. We like to strategize. We like to have a vision board. We like all this good stuff. And if you're like me, not only do you like to plan and get in front of things, you like to spiritualize it. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah, it's not just me. Here's what it looks like. Here's how you spiritualize it, you planners. You say, Lord, I've worked on this strategy. I'm going to start this new business. God, would you come along with me and bless this business? <laughs> if that's not you, here's, here's another one. God, I've, I've prayed and I've decided that I need to move forward with this relationship. Now, will you help me navigate how to get through this? 
Here's a good one. Lord, I'm fixing to quit this job. Will you provide for me and stretch my finances in the name of Jesus? Do you, do you, do you hear how foolish we sound? Because the fundamental problem is, what we're doing is we're saying, God, here's where I'm going. Will you join alongside me? <laughs> the more appropriate thing is, is, God, where are you going, and how can I join alongside you? What we have to do is ask ourselves, do I want God to be my guide, or I just want him to be my ride? God, do I want to follow you wherever you're going to take me, or do I just want to dial up Uber on my phone and tell you where I want to go? God, are you in control, or is it my agenda that's in control, and I'm going to beg you to come along with me? God, I want you to be my ride so many more times than just my guide. But yet Jesus said it this way, if you want to follow me, you must turn from your selfish ways. You must take up your cross and follow me. I've got a problem because I don't always want to do that in almost every area of my life. And sometimes what happens is we have our own agendas and it blocks our faith from being activated in our lives. God's got so much for us. He wants us to have an explosive faith. He wants our faith to go beyond what we can just see to what we cannot see. But what happens is when our agendas get in the way, it blocks our faith. See, what we have here today is this explosive faith idea. We're going to go through the book of Joshua the first six chapters, I'm going to start us in chapter 3. We have the children of Israel. They've been in the wilderness for 40 years. They've been struggling. They've been being challenged. They've been going through for 40 years, and then they get to the edge of promise. What they've planned for, what they've prayed for, what they've hoped for, what God has told them they're going to get to, they get right to the edge. Joshua chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, we're just going to read these four verses. It says this. Then Joshua got up early in the morning. He and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim and came to Jordan. That's a long I. Shittim. Praise God. They, they got up early. I don't know what y'all are laughing at. They got up early in the morning. He and all the sons of Israel, and they set out to Jordan. They got up early and they set out. Say, I'm going somewhere. They were going somewhere. They had been waiting for 40 years, and now it was time to move. Verse 2, then at the end of three days, the officers went through the midst of the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, when you see the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant represents the presence of God. When you see the Ark of the Lord your God with the Levitical priests carrying it, then you shall set out from the place and go after it. However, there shall be a distance between you and it of about 2,000 cubits. Don't come near it so that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Verse 3. Let's read this one again. It says, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord, you sh and you see the, the, the Levitical priest carrying it, you shall set out from your place and go after it. Let's be real clear. God's saying, don't get ahead of me. Wait till you see me move, then you move. Matt Anderson, don't get out in front of me. Wait till I move, then you move. Verse 4, and there shall be a distance of about 2,000 cubits before you start moving. In today's terms, what that is is two-thirds of a mile. Two-thirds of a mile, it's over a half a mile. What I want you to do is get two-thirds of a mile down, and once the ark's two-thirds of the mile down, then you start moving. Check this out. That means God is two-thirds of a mile ahead of where you want to go. He's two-thirds of an hour ahead of where you want to be in the future. He's two-thirds of a year in front of where you're planning to be next year. He's two-thirds of a lifetime in front of where you and I are. He's already there if we just let him get there before we rush the process. God is already in front of us, and he's just wanting to know, will you give me time to get where we're going so that I can get there, prepare it, part those waters, and make it so that you can walk through on dry ground? God, can we just let you get there ahead of us? That's where the children of Israel are. They're at the edge of this promise, and then there's five principles we're going to look at today of what do you do when you're on the edge of the promise? What do you do when you're on the edge of breakthrough? That's where we see Joshua chapter 1. Let me go to Joshua chapter 1 because I want to give you some background on this. 
what's happening is I've mentioned they've been tra- traveling for 40 years. What that means, they crossed over the Red Sea with Moses, and then for 40 years they wandered in the wilderness. What happened in 40 years is a whole generation died. All that's left is this new Joshua generation. And all they have to live by is what the previous generation told them. They didn't see the Red Sea. All they know is the wilderness. All they know is the desert. All they know is that they've seen a lot of deaths. They've seen a lot of burials. They've seen a lot of miracles. They've seen a lot of crazy events. All they know is hard times. But they know they've been hearing about this promise that we're finally about to get to a breakthrough. And you would think they would be celebrating. You would think they'd be happy. You'd think they'd be jumping up and down, dancing. But here they are at the edge, and they're at a hard time. The greatest battle for us is when we're closest to the breakthrough. Their greatest battle in verse 1 to start this whole book off is it says, Moses is dead. The one who's been our leader is dead. The one who led us out of Egypt is dead. The one who parted the Red Sea as we escaped Pharaoh is dead. The one who looked up to heaven and fire came down is dead. The one who talked with God is dead. The one who gave us the Ten Commandments, he is dead. Our hope, our leader, everything we have is dead. So where do we go from here? You see, they came to the edge and they were ready to cross through But everything about how they had planned it had just vanished. They were mourning. They were crying. They were weeping. And maybe you've been in a situation where mourning has happened because it's not, the plan is not how you imagined it. You knew what the promise was and you thought the process was something you knew, but it changed everything. Maybe the plan changed. Maybe someone in the family or a friend changed. Maybe you lost someone along the way. Everything about what you knew had changed, but God says, I need you to keep moving forward. What happened with them is in their mourning, they forgot that there would be a new morning. In their mourning, what they had confused was Moses with the mission. They thought the man equaled the mission. They thought when Moses is gone, the mission is dead. We're not going to make it here because there's been an alteration. There's been a halftime adjustment, so how are we going to get there? And they're frustrated, and they're crying out. And all of a sudden... God says, you know what, Uh, Moses is dead, and then he turns to Joshua, and he says, I'm going to be with you, just like I was with Moses. In the midst of their crying and their mourning and their complaining, they miss their leader. God is appointing a new leader. God did not mourn. God did not get frustrated. He didn't get upset. He didn't have anxiety. He didn't say, Moses, my CEO is gone. How am I going to accomplish this? God turned to the next man up and said, the same way I talked to Moses, Joshua, I'm now going to talk to you. And there was a transition that began to take place. And I'm going to tell you what transitions are hard. Let me tell you what Joshua had to face. Moses had led them for over 40 years. They're mourning, and God is transitioning to a new leader. But imagine, have you... Anybody, if you've ever seen somebody try to follow after a great leader, you'll know it's nearly impossible. They're mourning, and God's appointing a new person. And I, I can just imagine the children of Israel saying, you, You're our new, this rookie, Joshua's a rookie. Can you part the Red Sea like Moses did? Can you talk to God like Moses did? Can you lead us through the wilderness like Moses did? Have you ever seen somebody that all they talk about is their past? You know, at my old church, how they used to do it. The the ushers wore gloves at my old church. Or you know somebody who's always talking about their old job. Back at my old job, this is how we used to do it. My old boss, he was so good. He would lead us this way. My old boss, this is what Joshua was facing. My old, or, oh, praise the Lord. Hopefully after the couples conference, nobody would say, you know how my ex used to, my ex used to communicate with me this. Yeah, that would be some drama right there. Some people are so focused on the past, they don't see God's ready to move into the future. And sometimes we've got to say, you know what, God, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to be ready to move because where we like to put a period, God's only put a comma. Where we like to have an ending, God's saying, you know what, I'm just taking a breath right here, then I'm ready to move on. No matter how hard the situation is, we've got to trust in the transition. God's going to lead us in steps and stages and by his spirit. God's going to be closer than we can ever imagine, even in the hardest times. And maybe you've been through some hard times and you've wondered, God, where are you? 
You know, there's a way that church people talk about God's presence sometimes, me included, uh, me included. Um, you may be guilty of this. Um, we have a way of sometimes saying, God showed up today. You, you ever said that? Man, I'm telling you what, somebody was leading worship. The song was going in. Pastor Conway was losing his mind up here preaching. You go home, you say, man, God showed up today. Or God has a breakthrough in your life when you say God showed up today. But what I want you to think about for just a second, this is going to be painful. To say God showed up is to implicitly deny that he was not already there and working. When we say God showed up, what we're saying is we're reaffirming a, a, a thought that God is not always here. Sometimes he's here, but not always. When we say God showed up, what we're saying is... We're saying if I praise a certain way, if I pray a certain way, if I read a certain scripture, if I run a lap around the whole church, if I do something, what I can do is cause God to show up in my life. And this cannot be more than a fallacy. This is how the pagans actually operate. Pagans would actually say, you know what, they have their own little gods and they do rituals because they believe if I do these different things, my God will show up. And our God is saying, I don't show up. What you do is you wake up to the fact that I'm already here. I'm, I've never gone anywhere. I'm right here. And I'm going to tell you where this is most powerful in the midst of your hardest situation. When you're at the edge of breakthrough and it gets harder than it's ever been before, God says, I want you to know that I'm closer than you could ever imagine. I've never left you. I'm not about to forsake you. I am right here with you. You've got to keep moving forward and trusting in me. Now, as you move forward, you're going to be challenged to be discouraged. And the next thing we have to do is say, I'm not going to be discouraged. I'm going to say no to discouragement. I'm going to say yes to God's strength. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, it says it this way. It says, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Four times in this chapter alone, it says, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. That means we need to be strong and courageous. That's God's way of saying, I'm going to keep saying this until you get it. Yes. Another parenting note. Yes, I'm going to keep saying this until y'all are going to think I don't like my kids. I really do. I love my kids. They're a gift. They bring me closer to Jesus. Praise God. <laughs> my wife, too. They bring both of us closer to Jesus. Amen. But it says be strong and courageous. Here's what I want to focus on. It says do not tremble or be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Do not tremble or be dismayed. Next to tremble, the word fear should go. Next to dismayed, the word discouragement should go. And right here it says first comes fear, then comes discouragement. And over the last few years, there's been a heightened sense of mental health. And how we can be mentally healthy. And what psychologists, psychiatrists, in one segment, what they're saying is, is that what happens when we go through trauma is the first thing that happens is fear. The first thing that happens is fear because when a hard situation comes, we get scared. I get scared. And in my fear, I start saying, oh my goodness, I can't believe what's happening right now. I've got to figure out how I can change this back to normal. I've got to figure out how I can get this fixed. I'm scared. This, this is going to alter everything. I've got to fix everything. And then what happens after fear is that after I do everything I can to change it and it's stuck, then I get discouraged. Fear and then discouragement. I get discouraged and I wonder, is this ever going to change? Is this my new normal? And what we have is we're dealing with fear and with discouragement. But God says, have I not commanded you? Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. When you proceed in hard times, you will be fearful. You will be discouraged. But I'm convinced that God's not talking about a feeling. I'm convinced that he wouldn't ask me to do something that I can't do. So if he wouldn't ask me to do something I can't do, how could this be a feeling and who I am as fear and discouragement? Here's what I know. God wouldn't ask me. He wouldn't ask me to get in the rain and not get wet. He wouldn't ask me to go into a land full of giants and not be scared. So what I'm convinced of is that discouragement is not a feeling. It's a focus. 
Here's what I know God says here. He says, do not be afraid and do not be discouraged. He doesn't say don't feel afraid and don't feel discouraged. He says do not be. So what that means is our identity is not wrapped up in our feelings. Our identity is wrapped up in God, who God says we are. So just because I feel it does not mean I have to behave like it. Because I'm going to go into some hard times. It's okay to feel the fear. What it's not okay to do, somebody asked me before, how do I feel that? What, what it's not okay to do is live that out and let it control your life. How do you do that? You need to say, God, I feel fear, but I know deep down inside you've said that I don't have a spirit of fear. I have a spirit of power and love and of a sound mind. And God, right now you've given me this joy. You've given me this power. That's not my own power. It's yours. This strength is not my strength. It's yours. God, you've birthed this inside of me. So in the midst of my fear, can I begin to experience some encouragement? God, I'm feeling one way, but that's not who I am. So, God, I'm going to speak who you say I am. It's not a feeling. It's a focus. And I'm going to tell you what. Um, I don't have this all figured out. My feelings can be all over the map sometimes. When things change, because remember, I like to get out in front of everything. And when it doesn't go how I want um, everything can be hard because sometimes when I don't like the change, I can be limited by my feelings. And God's got so much more for me. He does not want me to be fear. He wants me to be strength. So look at here. Don't, don't say no to discouragement and yes to strength. Let me tell you one more thing about discouragement that makes it so hard for me. Um, I tend to get most discouraged when I'm focused on myself. When I focus on my dreams, my aspirations, my plans, anything that has a my in front of it, I get really discouraged when it's not going my way. I'm most encouraged when I focus on all of God's plans and promises for my life and how good God is. So what I've got to do is if I don't want to be discouraged, I've got to say, how can I go to the world of encouragement by looking at God? And there's three things I do. Number one is resignation. I resign. <laughs> you think, why do you resign? I resign as the CEO of my life. I say, God, I'm going to put in my resignation right now. I'm going to stop being the CEO of all the plans in my life. Now, what does that mean? That means you might think that you're in charge of your life, but I'm going to tell you what. You just have the illusion of being in control. You think you're in the driver's seat. <laughs> you're really in the passenger seat. It's like driver's ed back in the day. You're driving, but somebody's in the passenger seat who's really in control. You think you're in control of your life. You're one phone call away from everything changing. God, I resign to being the CEO of my life. I put you in charge of my plans. God, I'm not just going to resign. I'm going to recalibrate how I look at life. Things that used to be setbacks, I'm going to look at as comebacks. Things that are walls in my life, I'm going to look at as opportunity. I'm going to recalibrate how I think, and I'm going to recalculate your blessings in my life. God, I'm going to count up all the ways that you've blessed me. I'm going to have an encouragement jar. I'm going to be grateful in all things. I'm going to resign. I'm going to have my resignation, my recalibration, and my recalculation. That's how I'm going to go so that I'm not discouraged in all of my life. We've got to say no to discouragement and yes to strength. If you flip your notes over, you'll, say, you'll see on there because in chapter 3, something crazy is going to happen. As they're getting ready to cross over, um, they walk up to the water in verse 5, chapter 3, verse 5. You'll see it on the screen. Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. After you follow me, chapter 3, he says, wait till you see the priest, then follow me. He says, I want you to consecrate yourselves, and then you will see the Lord do wonders among you. So tomorrow you'll see that God do wonders among you. He says, your focus is today, my focus is tomorrow. God's job description is out there tomorrow. My job description is today. What am I supposed to do today? Consecrate myself 
fancy biblical word for realign my life with God's purposes. Realign my agenda with his agenda. Consecrate myself. Spend time in his word and prayer. That means I'm just making a shift from me to him. My job is consecrate myself today. And God says, when you consecrate yourself today, I'm going to promise you that I'm already preparing a way for you tomorrow. Not just anyway. God says, I'm going to do amazing wonders for you tomorrow. The beauty of this passage is, if I trust God now, he'll take care of the future. The challenge for me is when my habits don't match my calling, when my consecration doesn't match my tomorrow. The challenge is when all of that comes out of alignment. I mean, we all want, um, most of us want great relationships. We want great, good physical health. We want financial security. We want to be growing in our purpose. We want to be following God and giving him our lives if I were to ask 100 people, they would say, yes, I want all of that. Then if I were to go back to the, the, the same 100 people and say, how do your habits line up with the things you say you want? The whole story would get different. Did you set aside time to invest in the loved ones that you want to have great relationships with? You want good physical health? Well, how's that gym membership that you got back in January going here in July? That one hurts me. Um, you, you want good finances? How well have you been managing your budget? You want to grow in my purpose for you? How well have you been dedicating yourself to personal growth? You want to know my purpose? How much have you been consecrating and realigning with my agenda in God's word? You see, according to John Maxwell, how this works is he says everything, <laughs> everything that's worthwhile, he does this, is uphill. Everything worthwhile is uphill, and sometimes we have uphill dreams, but downhill habits. Uphill dreams, downhill habits. There's never been a book written about accidental achievements. Everything worthwhile is uphill, and here's the deal. You cannot coast uphill. You have to work to get uphill. You have to, in the middle of your busy schedule, plan time to invest in loved ones, spend time with God, manage my budget. Everything uphill and the aspirations, the places God wants to take us, we have to work towards. And we have to be intentional is the key word. We have to plan out time and we have to say, I'm going to be intentional in this day. God, you've made this day. I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to focus on you. I'm going to be glad so that I can see you do something amazing in my tomorrow. God, I don't want to have uphill dreams with downhill habits. Help my habits match my calling. We all want the secret to success. We want the secret to how I can go uphill. Here's the deal. We underestimate, we greatly underestimate the value of making small decisions and small improvements day by day by day. We overestimate, and we think if I'm going to have God show up in a big way in my life, it takes me doing something huge. It takes little things day by day by day. But yet we want the secret to how we can do something big. There's this author, there's a book called The Gold Mine Effect. Rasmus Ankerson wrote this book, The Gold Mine Effect. I love this book. What he decided to do is he wanted to go to the six gold mines across the globe. What did he mean by gold mines? He said there is an unusual percentage of the world's talent in certain sports in six different countries. So he said, I want to go to these six countries, these gold mines. And he said, I want to start off, I want to go to Jamaica and figure out why are the best sprinters in the world in Jamaica. That's my shout out to Pastor Conway. Praise the Lord. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, Then he said, I want to go to South Korea to figure out why, why like half of the top 20 women's golfers are from South Korea. Then he said, I'm going to go to Russia because I want to figure out why are Russian women tennis players so good. Then he said, I want to go to Brazil and figure out why are the best soccer players in the world disproportionately coming from Brazil. Then he said, I want to go to Kenya and I want to find out why the best long distance runners are in Kenya. Then I want to go to Ethiopia and I want to figure out why the best middle distance runners are there. He said, I want to go to every one of these places and find the secret to why they're a gold mine for the best athletes. And the funniest thing was I was actually corrected by um, another one of our uh, Jamaican um, church members after the first service. 
I was corrected because what, what they found when he, he went, there was, there was a legend of Usain Bolt's father. Usain Bolt's dad, what he did is everybody would come say, what's the secret to why Usain Bolt's so fast? And his dad told him that the secret is since he was a baby, I've been feeding him golden yams. <laughs> now, the correction was it's golden yams and aki fish. So someone said it's both of those things were the secret to Usain Bolt's speed. The funny thing was there's no secret. Usain Bolt's dad off record said there's no, everybody wants a secret, but the funny thing is there is no secret. He said, since they want a secret, I made up a secret. <laughs> you know how many people are eating them golden yams trying to see if I'm going to be fast now? <laughs> the real secret in every one of these gold mines, there was a real secret. Um, it, it didn't have a whole lot to do with just the genes and the DNA. It had to do with an environment and a system set up to produce great athletes. Let me tell you, in all of these areas of the world, they set up systems that before kids are even in school, they're doing that sport. Not only are they doing that sport, they've created a culture where there's the best of that sport there. So they have an expectation that if I do this, I'm going to be great. They're not listening to what anybody else is saying. They say, I've seen the gold medalists come from here, and I'm doing what they're doing. But even better than that is that people can be great, he found, in any sport if you commit and spend 10,000 hours practicing that sport. Did you hear me? 10,000 hours. Let me tell you what that looks like. If you have a kid who you think is going to be the next whatever, um, 10,000 hours is what the professionals say. That's how much practice it takes to be great. You don't do 10,000 hours in a week or in a month. Over 10-year span. Over 10 years, that's 1,000 hours a year, there's roughly 50 weeks in a year. That means that there's 20 hours a week for 10 years to be great. That means if you have a five-day week, that means your kid is practicing that sport four hours a day, all week, for 52 weeks, for 10 years. Greatness is not something that happens just like that. Greatness is something that's built in habits over time, hour by hour, by day by day. And we underestimate the little things in life. And that was what came through in this book. They said, you know what? We can't overestimate the big things and underestimate the little things. We've got to have habits that match up with where God wants to take us in our life. And our habits are not something huge. It looks like just praying every day for a few minutes. It looks like just hopping on the closer Devo and reading a little bit of scripture every day. I'm telling you, it's not something big. It's little things day by day, and we've got to have habits that match where God wants to take you and me. The little things. What we've got to do is prepare today for tomorrow's wonders. Next thing we've got to do is in chapter 4 is, chapter four is build a monument. I'll tell you what that means. Um, as the priest stepped into the water, the water began to heap up, and it, 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 the water piled up, it said, when the priest got to the middle. And then all of the children of Israel crossed this Jordan River. The previous generation had crossed the Red Sea. Now here we are going through a river. This, it's, there's like 40,000 soldiers alone. There's anywhere between 600,000 and a million people that crossed through to the other side. When they get to the other side, what Joshua says is, hey, I need you, look here, I need you to get 12 men, one man from each tribe, and I need him to go back into the sea. You're like, hold up, we just got through this. Now you want me to go back into it? Yes, I need 12 men to go back to the middle of where you've been delivered from. And what I think God is intentionally saying is what he says in this passage, I need you to go back to the middle where the priests are still standing, and I need you to pick up 12 stones of remembrance. And what I really think God's saying is, you know what? It was cool what you did before, and it's cool that you made through, but I want you to remember what it was like in the middle of your heartache, in the middle of your struggle, in the middle of your hard situation. I want you to remember right in the middle when you couldn't see where you were going and you couldn't see where you came from, when you were stuck in the middle. I want you to remember the middle, and God's saying, I don't always just want you to get through something. I want you to get from something. I don't want you to just get through it. What are you going to get from it? Take these stones out and then put a monument out on the other side of a river. 
And I want this monument to be of remembrance. And we're going to read the whole purpose of this monument is in chapter 4, verse 21 to 24. This is the why. After you've come through something great, I want you to build a monument so that you can remember. It says in verse 21, And he said to the sons of Israel, When you ask, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. Ooh, so that, so that, so that all the people of the earth will know that the hand of the Lord is mighty so that you may fear the Lord forever. I want you to remember and I want you to tell the next generation. What he says is the greatest enemy of your faith is going to be your forgetfulness. The greatest enemy of you sending the next generation into blessing is that you might forget. And I'm going to tell you what, I forget stuff all the time. I do my best to put a reminder in my notes. I put it on my calendar. I am horrible at remembering things. The enemy of not just you, the enemy of the next generation is our forgetfulness. Our forgetfulness. Let me tell you what this looks like for me. One of the biggest debates in our home with our kids was parenting and cell phones. Anybody been in this debate? Um, When does a kid get a cell phone? Which phone do they get? Do they get data? Do they get no data? Do they just make calls? Do they just text? Can they have apps? Um, And if you were to ask our kids, they would have you believe that they were the last kids of their age in all of one community church to get a cell phone. They would have you believe that they were, the la- they were the only kid in their whole school who didn't have a cell phone. They would have you believe that in the whole world, they were the only ones without a cell phone at their age. They needed a cell phone. So when we got um, ready to finally cave, um, this is real first world problems, right? Um, and when you can have a phone, and we walk through some rules with our oldest daughter, and um, it, I'm, I'm going to say these rules. Just know that I'm saying these, and I fail at enforcing almost all these. So <laughs> we said, here's a phone. It's your phone, but it's not really your phone. Um, your phone has a password, and if that password ever changes, you shall feel wrath. Rule number one. Rule number two, we will have access to your phone at any time. Rule number three, um, you will not be in your room alone with your phone. You will not have any apps that were not approved by us first on your phone. And when you shall get said apps, you will not have any friends that we did not approve as friends on that app. Praise the Lord. I know this is too much. Your phone shall not operate between the hours of 10 p.m. and 7 a.m. Why? You don't need that. Your phone is yours, but it's not really yours. (laughs) It's yours to manage. You've been a gift, but it's yours to manage. You see, the problem is the enemy of her faith is her forgetfulness. Because over time, she begins to forget that this is her phone to manage, and she begins to think this is her phone. How could you take away my phone? How could you restrict my access? The enemy to her cell phone is her forgetting that this is not just hers to carte blanche do whatever she wants. This is hers to manage while she's under the care of her parents. Praise God. The enemy of our faith is our forgetfulness. We lose the purpose we have when we begin to forget. And the enemy wants us to forget that it's God that brought us through the hard situation. He wants to give us spiritual amnesia so we don't remember how we got here. He wants us to set up these stones. And when we first set up the stones of remembrance, what we say is, you know what? God did it. He brought us through it. But then when next year comes, the story changes and says, you know what? God did it, but I was there walking. I had to put some effort into this too. God did it, and I helped him. Year three, you know what? I took the first step. I did it. God helped me out. Year four, it turns into, you know what? Can you believe I did this? 
Can you believe I made it? You see how the slow drift? He did it. He did it and I helped. I did it and he helped. And finally, I did it. God wants the slow drift from God did it to I did it. And that's the tragedy of this passage, that they set up a stones, that they had this right here, that God did something amazing. And I just want to read to you Judges chapter 2, verse 10. This is when Joshua is about to pass away. Remember, they've crossed through. They've had the breakthrough. They've seen God move. Listen to what happens by the time Joshua is about to pass away. It says in Judges chapter 2, verse 10, All of that generation, that's Joshua's generation, were gathered to their fathers. That means they're passing away. And another generation rose up after them who did not know the Lord, nor even the work which he had done for Israel. By the end of Joshua's life, everybody had forgotten what God had done. That tells me a lot of things. That tells me that sometimes, sometimes it's hard work and we've been so faithful that maybe, maybe we feel like I can take a break because I've been putting in so much. Or, or maybe I get confused and think it's me. There's a whole lot of reasons that the next generation forgets that it was God who showed up. But it's on this generation to continue to spread the news of what God did. You see, there's so much that happens. What it tells me is you can have the stones built up, but you can lose the story of why they're there. I can have a monument and I can lose the message. I can have religion and be at church every single week and not have a relationship with God. It means that I can do all of the work right here, but yet still lose the heart to tell the story of what God's done in my life. That he saved me, that once I was blind and now I see. That I was facing a river that I could not get through and he parted the waters. What is the story of your life that you need to tell to the next generation? God's saying right here, I need you to build a monument because you've got to keep this going. And we think it's about us. I think it's about me. I want to build my resume of everything God's done. But God's really saying, this isn't about you, fool. This is about them. And you paving the way for the next generation to make a difference. Remembering fuels our faith. Remembering gives us hope. Remembering carries the legacy. What do we want our children to remember? And how are we going to set up monuments to do that? Now, after they cross through the river, um, that's all good and well. Then they come up to the first city in chapter 6. Um, they got to build a monument. And then after the monument, they come in front of the biggest walls they've seen before, the walls of Jericho. They come up to the first city that God has for them to conquer. And here we go. It's the walls of Jericho. We've crossed the Jordan. We've done all the work. And now here we are at these walls, and God tells Joshua to tell the people, what I want you to do is I want you to, many of you have heard this, I want you to circle these walls once a day for six days. Joshua, come on, man. We just wandered for 40 years circling in the wilderness, in the desert, and now you're telling me we need to take another walk for six more days? Joshua, this, this, this is not how Moses used to lead us. Joshua, this is how it used to be. We're, we've come to the edge. Now we get our breakthrough. Joshua, you really want us to keep walking. Forty years we've walked. Now we've crossed to the promised land. And you're telling us now the goal is to keep walking again? Come on, man. I don't want to walk anymore, Joshua. I've already been praying for my breakthrough. It should happen now. Joshua, I can't see any progress if I'm just going in circles. Where's the progress in this? How can I know you're really there if you just want us to walk in circles? And sometimes we're walking in circles and we don't see any progress. Maybe you've got somebody you've been praying for for years. And you're like, do I really need to keep praying? Maybe you've got a child you've been praying will come back to their faith. Do I really? I've, I've just... Maybe you've got an ailment or a sickness that you're like, God, I can't, I can't do, this pain keeps hurting. Are you ever going to deliver me from this, God? I'm tired of walking, God. Why six more days? And what God says is I need you to trust me in this process. Even though you can't see the progress, here, here's where we really fail. If we could see on the other side of the walls, it wouldn't be that hard to keep walking. It reminds me of this animal, this beautiful animal called the African impala. 
This is like a gazelle and a deer all crossed into one animal. The African impala, what it can do, here's what's beautiful about this thing. It can jump 10 feet in the air, as high as a basketball hoop, and it can jump 30 feet in distance. Did you hear me? 10 feet up and 30 feet in distance. This thing's got serious hops. This thing can sail. But what they've discovered in Africa is all they need to do is build a fence about three and a half feet tall that's solid that you can't see through, and the impala will never jump out of it. You see, you just need that fence to go. The reason three and a half feet tall is because that's about how tall its eyes are. If you can cover where its eyes can't see on the other side of the fence, it won't jump. It's got all the jumping power in the world in it. It can go twice as high. It can go up and over that fence. But if you block its eyes, it will not jump. What they've learned, it will not jump if it cannot see where its feet are going to land. And so many of us are saying, you know what, God? I'm not going to jump. I'm not going to trust you anymore because I don't know where my feet are going to land. I've been hurt before. I've been through some stuff. And, God, I don't know if I can keep trusting you because I can't see the end of this process. And we say, you know what, I've got all the faith in me, but, God, as long as I can't see that, I'm not going to activate this and I'm not going to move forward. And God's saying, keep on trusting. Have faith in the process. Keep moving forward. Believe in me. Do not be discouraged. Say yes to strength. And what happens is we get caught up in this holding pattern of saying, God, I'm not going to do it. And we're scared to jump. And we live by sight and not by faith. And what God says, I want you to not view the circling as a boring process, but view the circling as a process focusing on me. I want you to circle those problems, circle those challenges, circle those obstacles. Number one, circle them in prayer. As you're walking, I find it fascinating that Joshua actually instructs them um, to be totally silent for the first six days because I know I would be mumbling something. And, and everybody's mama told them, if you don't have something good to say, don't say nothing at all. So I think the reason they have to be quiet is they need to focus on God and pray. They need to circle in prayer. They also need to circle in power. This is such a great reminder that the power I'm circling in is not my own power. It's I'm circling in God's power. I'm remembering that when I'm at my absolute weakest, that's when I have strength. I'm also circling with perseverance. Remember the little things. The little things over and over again. I'm circling with perseverance. Jericho was only about six acres Big. It was about this. This city was about the size of six football fields. It only took 30 minutes to walk around this. It was not something huge. As little as that is, I need you to focus and persevere and do what I ask you to do consistently over the next six days. And the last thing he says is, I want you to circle this obstacle with praise. Circle with faith and all these things, and then I want you to circle with praise. It reminds me of Psalm chapter 22, verse 3, which says this, You are holy, O Lord. You are enthroned upon the praises of your people. Some of you know that verse as this way when it says in some other version, it says, God inhabits the praises of his people. It means God's throne sits on top of when his people praise him. But remember I told you earlier, God is already, already here. I don't think that passage is saying, I think this passage unlocks the statement earlier. I don't think God's saying, when you praise me, then I come down. I don't think this is about proximity. I think it's about perspective. I think it's saying that when I'm in my hardest times, when I praise God, I begin to see that he's already right there. When I begin to worship God, then my eyes are open to his presence already in my life. When I say, God, you're the biggest thing in my life. You're bigger than any challenge, any wall, any obstacle. When I do that, all of a sudden I see God's already there and God's got this. So I need y'all's help. We're going to practice this. Uh, we're going to practice this today. Um, we're going we're gonna to read through the last psalm in the book of Psalms, Psalm 150. I need you to help me practice praising God because there's a lot of ways that we should be praising God and a lot of things we should do. And this chapter, uh, this book has six verses in, in Psalm 150, six verses. I need you to help me. We're going to read this together, all right? They're going to put it on the screen, and we're going to read Psalm 150, verses 1 to 6 together. Can you help me do that? Let's read together, everyone. 
Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him, trumpet, sound. Praise him with a harp and lyre. Praise him with a timbrel and dancing. Praise him with stringed instruments and pipes. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Did you hear that? Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. In the middle of your circumstance, praise the Lord. In the middle of the walls in front of you, praise the Lord. When you're standing in the middle of a river and you can't see which way to go, praise the Lord. When you've got heartache and it doesn't make sense, praise the Lord. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. My promise is that when you choose to praise God, you will see his presence show up in your life. When you choose to praise God, it doesn't mean that everything will be fixed. What it means is that you'll know God is with you in everything. God's saying, I'm not just bringing you through it, I'm getting you something from it. So Heavenly Father, would you help us today? Would you speak to our hearts and help us to stay focused on how we can have an explosive faith that praises you in all things, praises you at all times, praises you in every circumstance, says, you know what, God, I'm going to give thanks in everything. God, no matter how hard it looks, would you help us to praise you because something happens in our hearts when we praise you. And God, we collectively pray for the person who's in the battle right now, the person who's in so much pain that it hurts to even praise. God, the person who's ready to give up, maybe already has given up, God, would you give them a new hope today that you want them to keep moving forward? You want them to experience your strength. You want them to access your power. God, give them a fresh new hope today that they can make it if they depend on you, God. Help us to be the encouragers in this house. God, we love you so much, and we thank you that we can have hope in a God that loves us that much. So, God, we praise you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Y'all, let's praise the Lord. Amen.